Good day, everyone, and welcome to the first installment of The Gadfly. Today's talk will be on what I call the four stages of liberalism, and in it, I want to explain just what I think liberalism was like when it got started and how it mutated into what we have today. Stage one I call virtue liberalism because it so happened that most of the first settlers in North America in the early 17th century belonged to small, morally bonded religious communities that had been suffering persecution in Europe from which they wanted desperately to be free. So at considerable personal risk and sacrifice, they migrated to the New World with the intent of creating a better world of religious tolerance <clears throat> and freedom of conscience. However, they were not uh, seeking personal freedom just for themselves in the sense of having only personally chosen commitments or obligations. They would have considered such a motive selfish, unnatural, and perhaps even a sin, and one that contradicts the very meaning of moral and social obligation. They would have said, we need freedom not to do just what we want, but to do what we ought to do. In other words, and this is certainly radical from today's point of view, we need freedom to be good. So by today's standards, they were a very conservative sort of liberal. However, their distinctive communitarian notion of freedom has been weakening for almost three centuries. We hardly ever hear anyone today insisting in no uncertain terms that we need to, free, to be free so that we can be good. And that is something worth thinking about. Stage two I call individual and property liberalism. By the early 18th century all over Europe, but especially in the New World, the virtue motive was slowly being displaced by more practical individual freedom and property rights motives. This shift was fueled mostly by the political philosophy of John Locke. And we refer to this, this stage traditionally as the classical liberal phase. Its main features were individual freedom, the right to own property, the right to free market exchanges, and so on. But perhaps most importantly, it was the idea that individuals create their own society and their government by contract for protection of what he called their natural rights. And accordingly, they agreed to surrender some of this freedom to the authority of the sovereign to get that protection. But surely the most radical Lockean idea was that the people have a right to give direct or indirect consent to all the laws under which they live or they are not bound by them. And so they also have a right of revolt in the event that the government breaks this contract by what Locke called a continued, uh, continued and serious abuses. This Lockean menu, which basically exalted private reason and will above normative law, was the basis of the American Declaration of Independence of July 4th, 1776. And, it, and this was a revolution in favor of radical liberty. So the 13 colonies soon began operating as a loose alliance of sovereign states. But their legislatures were just as soon filled by men of very little experience. Freedom was abused, 
and independence was pushed too far. Seven of the states began minting their own money. Some passed tariff laws against neighboring states. Nine states had their own navies, which often seized the ships of other states. Some states threatened war on others. And some enraged citizens were dissolving their own legislatures and demanding the abolition of their debts, and worse. Thomas Jefferson, who had a lot to do with the Declaration of Independence, famously complained that, quote, an elective despotism was not the government we fought for, unquote. And Alexander Hamilton wrote that the 13 states had become, quote, wretched nurseries of unceasing discord, unquote. So something had to be done to prevent chaos within and war between them. The U.S. Constitution of 1787 was the result. It was, in effect, a revolution in favor of government. And it was a very conservative document with the emphasis in the phrase United States on the word united rather than on the word states. This was the framework for stage two liberalism, a new kind of constitutionally ordered liberty, ordered liberty that became an example to the world and stood America in good stead for over a century, primarily because there was still a very strong religious and moral foundation on which all were standing that prevented the classical liberty they enjoyed from descending into license and that blocked the federal government from invading the powers of the states. But there were other social and moral forces that were eroding this liberty motive. And this brings us to stage three, what I call equality liberalism. The question now is, how did those original liberty-loving but deeply social and very religious regimes mutate into the equality-loving, radically individualist, secular regimes we have today? It took only about a century and a half but it began for a simple reason. Liberty for all was not producing the perfect society of which those first liberals had been dreaming. That century and a half saw many things. The rise of science, a continent-wide rural-urban migration, which is still going on, a growing materialism, a corresponding steep decline in religious ideals, unprecedented levels of wealth, and along with this, the emergence of what was looking very much like a permanent underclass of people who had fallen or who were born into poverty or who had simply lost their will to seize opportunity, the opportunities of a free country and to rise by their own efforts. This engendered the new focus on equality. At this point, sincere freedom and property liberals were becoming disillusioned. They saw that under a regime rooted in freedom for all, some of the people were indeed very hardworking and did well, but some were lazy and became poor. Some were poor through no fault of their own. Some were bright, some stupid, some honest, some dishonest, and so on. Time passed. The people endured two world wars with between them a depression and the rise of a lot more class envy especially as expressed in and spread throughout the West by the European socialist and communist movements. And in a weaker 
but no less pervasive form by our so-called progressive liberal democracies. Much as we are seeing again today, by the way, with the Occupy Wall Street, Wall Street and the envy produced by the 1%. In short, entire populations were now primed to abandon their original confidence in individual freedom, free markets, and personal responsibility, and for the first time to argue that social and economic success or trouble cannot all be due to internal traits, that a person's condition in life may also be a consequence of external causes and possibly of an exploitive system. Of course, that's what Karl Marx had been arguing since the middle of the 19th century. This shift signaled a profound modification of the entire moral bedrock of the Western world. It was a slow shift in the allocation of responsibility for one's condition in life from self to others or to the system. Meanwhile, at the same time, huge increases in pro productivity and wealth, combined with steep increases in the income tax this made possible, began providing Western governments with unprecedented tax harvests. By any reasonable measure, there were only a handful of wealthy nations at the turn of the 20th century, but there were fourfold more by mid-century. These new tax harvests in turn began fueling a massive growth of programs aiming to fix the system. Under rubrics such as the Just Society, the Great Society, and other catchy utopian labels. For the first time in history, <clears throat> a quasi-official argument of state was being developed to the effect that economic and social equality <clears throat> excuse me, are preconditions for liberty. This was different, and it boiled down to a new, and if equality has to be forced by law, a logically flawed equation. Namely, that equality equals liberty, or is essential for liberty. In short, those original stage two freedom liberals were mutating into modern liberals, or more simply into statists. That was inevitable, because you can't equalize a free people except by force of law, with the enormous bureaucratic machinery required to take from some <clears throat> and give to others, and to implement and monitor those laws. That is, to search out and adjust inequalities in the citizenry by force. This is danger language. In short, the modern democracies were slowly abandoning their previous emphasis on freedom for all under laws that were equal for all to adopt the big banner, the big government banner of equality for all under unequal laws. But this was a radically new problem, for all the liberal democracies were now embracing a self-imposed contradiction. Most of them were slowly becoming so-called social democracies. But how can there be such a thing? Socialism mandates top-down control to produce the desired equality of outcome. But a liberal democracy demands a bottom-up liberty of outcomes whereby individuals behave independently and express their natural differences under laws that are, that are the same for all, 
So the focus here is not so much now on so-called natural rights, but on natural differences under laws that are the same for all. At this point, we could say that the entire Western world was shifting from its original emphasis on creating an equal starting line for everyone to an emphasis on an equal finishing line for everyone. Given enough time, a self-imposed contradiction this deep would eventually mean complete policy paralysis and decline. So there would have to be a fourth stage or mutation. And I call this mutation liber libertarian socialism. This is the most recent and perhaps the final mutation of the Western democracies. For now, they all had to face the same question, namely, how can we equalize, subsidize, control, and guarantee by force of law, that is, by the will of the state, more equal conditions of life for everyone, as the totalitarian states of the 20th century had been trying to do, and still call ourselves free? Well, divide and conquer would be the answer. The first step was to split the political body into two bodies, into a private body and a public body, each with its own justifying ideology. There would be complete freedom of individual will for all things personal, sexual, and biological, such as the abortion right, easy divorce, homosexual rights, contraception rights, transgender rights, pornography rights, gay marriage rights, a euthanasia right, even a personal pronoun right to create your own gender, and who knows what's next. All of this was to be available to everyone equally in the name of freedom. The most astonishing national symbol of this new, wholly free, private body is surely the in-your-face reality of virtually unlimited, uncensored pornography, with all the perversities of choice streamed into billions of homes, hotels, and computer screens, and cell phones by cable, satellite, and the internet. We, the people, have never been so free, was the intended message. But at the same time, <clears throat> in most once free and minimally regulated democracies, and with astonishing speed, there would now be a newly aggressive exer exercise of a pervasive public will, a new vast public realm of invasive regulation and guaranteed public goods, funded by increased taxation and massive and permanent public debt, extending the tent tentacles of government into a myriad of formerly private properties, social, artistic, and community activities, and commercial operations, while positioning the state as the generous benefactor, regulator, and protector of all equally. The result is that the typical citizen of a modern democracy now lives in all private matters like the ideal libertarian, who demands complete individual freedom with respect to things private, personal, sexual, and moral, as he or she can imagine and defend as compliant with not harming others. But with respect to all things public, this person is similar to the socialist who reaches reflexively for government solutions and support of as many social and economic goods and services as the state has deemed it feasible to provide. What is the government going to do about this? <clears throat> is today the most common 
citizen question. The result is that although historically libertarians and socialists have always despised each other's ideologies, after all, each was developed specifically to oppose the other, the two have now been successively fused beyond the dreams of even the most ambitious social planner into a hybrid system or synth synthesis that is part libertarian and part socialist. The end result is our novel regime type, which, as I say, I call libertarian socialism. And it is, it is a fusion of opposites that has become pervasive in the Western world in an astonishingly short period of time. To achieve it, the unspoken trade offered as a lure to the people to give up their freedom was the just as unspoken understanding that they would not bemoan their diminished real political, property, and economic freedoms, nor the permeation of their lives by high taxation and minute regulation, if they were allowed more sexual and bodily freedoms and pleasures in exchange. Libertarian socialism is now a homogenized regime type throughout the Western world, a new trans-ethnic, transnational form as ubiquitous as Coca-Cola and the cell phone that is so conducive to the growth of bureaucratic statism that many of these regimes have already become what I call tripartite states. These are states in which one-third of the people work hard to create wealth. Another one-third is employed by government at some level. And the last third receives significant annual income or benefits in kind from government. Once this final stage of the liberal democratic mutation is reached, there can be no return except from eventual catastrophic decline. For in the voting booth, sooner or later, the last two segments will always gang up on the first, just like two wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for dinner. Well, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this edition of The Gadfly. Be sure to check out my books and the essays on my website, and you can follow me on Twitter, at William Gardner. Thanks for listening.